Please take your Bibles and open them up to Exodus chapter 3. That's Exodus chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at a handful of verses in chapter 3. We looked at verses 1 to 10 last week, which were read for us this morning to try to recap and remind us of what we looked at back then. This morning we will be looking at verses 11 to 15. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we begin our study of God's word this morning? Father in heaven, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. For without you communicating, without you speaking, without your word, we would not know you. We would be blind. We would have no awareness of the grace that is in you, the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. We would be lost forever, and that lostness would be nothing Accept what we deserve. And yet, O God, every word that you give us this morning, every word of yours is rich in grace. Pray that you will give us hearts that revel in it today, that we may know and rejoice in you. This we pray in Christ's name, our Savior. Amen. Years ago, with my father... Uh, My dad, like many of you men, I am sure, he enjoyed watching a good John Wayne movie whenever he could find one on TV. And uh, I'll never forget, I don't know what the movie was, uh, but John Wayne is a writer. He finds himself abandoned at an old farmstead, or not not abandoned, he is a solo writer. He we're wounded. He's hurt. Uh, he's at his old farmstead. There's a woman and her son there, and she kind of cares for him. And uh, you know, very romantic setting. And and he's like cares about this woman, cares about her son. And you know, the husband is left. He's not in the picture anymore. Anyway, John Wayne is out, and he sees the this young boy fishing uh, by this fairly good sized river, and uh, finds out from the boy that he doesn't know how to swim. And John Wayne, in true John Wayne fashion, you know, can't endure. What is it? How can a boy your age not know how to swim? So he picks him up and he throws him into the river, right? The boy starts frantically calling out, frantically trying to get back to shore. And the boy's mother races out. What have you done? What have you done? He doesn't know how to swim. I know. That's why I threw him out there, John says. And she says, well, you know, he asked, well, you know, why don't you go help him if you're so concerned? And she says, I-, I don't know how to swim either. To which he responds by throwing her out into the water. And as I think about this as an adult in our time, I'm just imagining all of the lawsuits that would ensue from such a scene. Of course, in true John Wayne fashion, all of this involves, like, it all results in a very romantic setting, right? Um, that's how every great romance starts, just by throwing your prospective mate into a river and see if she can swim. But, um, you know, some of us, you know, if you can remember back to when you first learned to swim, or perhaps it's far too long ago, most of us it is, You remember watching a child learn to swim? Their parent takes them out to the the pool or to the creek or to the pond or whatever it may be. And they're waiting there. They want to get them in. You know, you put all of the the swimmies on, the the little air 
things that go up their arms. I have no idea what they're called. We just called them swimmies. They put all the, the accoutrement on them, get them all fastened up, put the whatever vest, whatever safety measures we may wear, we might want them to wear. We want them to get in the water. And, and initially, there's, as soon as they realize they'll be kept up by these things, they're very, they're very happy. And then you take them off. And they're afraid to get in the water. And you want them to get into the part of the pool or to the part of the pond or wherever, or the part of the ocean where they, their feet no longer touch and they are unwilling to go. They start kicking, they start screaming. Perhaps they're young enough, they just start crying. They're terrified. Their bath, they are fine with. You know, that water's shallow enough. But this, this is too much. It's overwhelming. They're afraid. And that feeling that those children have, then it, the reality is while hopefully they grow out of it, they become more comfortable in a pool, and often, as it is the case, within a few short hours or a day, they become too comfortable with around the water, and then you're watching them to make sure they don't get it in it when an adult's not around. But that feeling of being overwhelmed, that doesn't stop when we are two and three and four years old, does it? That begins to follow us through life. If you're a student, in a few short weeks, you will go to school. Some of you, you're homeschooled and your parents have already started that process. And maybe when you get to school, maybe when you begin to find out all that you have to do, you begin to feel overwhelmed. Perhaps it's at the start of a new job. Some of you are young enough, you have just started a job, a new job, and you are feeling overwhelmed. Do you remember those first few days? Perhaps it was retail and you have, you're getting comfortable with one thing, and then they switch you to something else. They switch you perhaps to being on the register. Do you remember the moments of panic you had at the beginning when you're trying to recall, which buttons do I push? How do I do this return? And I've got a line of angry customers here that are upset because it's taking me so long. How do I, re- how, how am I supposed to do this? That feeling of overwhelmed. And of course, the older we get, And the more serious life gets, the more profound that feeling of overwhelmed can be. When the Lord had given Moses, he had called him. We saw two weeks ago, as we've been tracing through this this month where we are emphasizing and looking upon God's call uh, for us, for missions. We saw that the the desire for missions, the desire to rescue comes from the very heart of God. He is one who is rich in compassion. At the end of Exodus chapter 2, we see that he sees the plight of his people. He hears them. He sees and he knows. He is rich in compassion. And then last week, we meditated on the holiness of God. How the God who is not safe yet saves. The God who is not and cannot be approached by sinners, yet he calls sinners to come. Those ironies still filter in the text. But our text ends as as he's called Moses, as he's brought him near, he has brought him to him for a purpose. And there at the end of what Mike read for us earlier, we find that in verse 10, come now, the Lord says, therefore, 
I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God tells Moses that he is going to send him back to Egypt wherein he is going to lead the people of God out of slavery. At this moment, Moses responds in a way that is completely normal. The way that you and I have responded to so many challenges, he is overwhelmed. He gets a sense here that he is not enough. And it is a good sense. It is a right sense. He is not enough. We are not enough. You are not enough. We see this in verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I to do this? Of course, you'll remember, Moses didn't always feel this way. When he was decades younger, when the opportunity presented presented itself, he thought, he didn't think twice about trying and to rescue and to lead God's people out of slavery. He thought he was enough then. He was young, he was strong, he was educated, he was healthy, he was wealthy, he had everything going for him. And yet he failed. He failed spectacularly. He failed so spectacularly he was now a fugitive from Egyptian justice. He fled to the wilderness where he has lived for 40 years. But he wasn't just rejected or or put off by Egypt and by the Egyptians. It was by his own people. They wanted nothing to do with him. He asks the question in verse 11, who am I? Well, you know what? That same question was asked much earlier back in chapter 2. When he tries to rescue the people of Israel, their response is, who do you think you are? Who made you a judge over us? Who made you to rescue us? Who put you there? Perhaps for these last 40 years, Moses has harbored some bitterness towards the people of Israel because they rejected him. Perhaps over these last 40 years, that question about who he is, has been internalized. I'm nobody. I'm not enough. Who am I? Perhaps over these last 40 years where Moses has not arisen to anything. I mean, he is in the lowest of the low job. He is a shepherd. He couldn't find, over the last 40 years, he couldn't find a better job than that of a shepherd for his father-in-law. And yet, God is calling him to go back to Egypt to lead the people of Israel, to lead God's people out of slavery. Perhaps this feels like another opportunity for Moses to be rejected all over again, a death sentence. And so the question is echoed, who am I? And yet what we find is that though Moses is not enough and he is insufficient, the answer from the Lord isn't, oh no, Moses, you are enough. Look with me at the very beginning of verse 12. So he, this is the Lord, the Lord says to him, I will certainly be with you. 
Make no mistake, Moses' feelings of inadequacy, of insufficiency, they're not wrong. And God, God does not correct him and says, Moses, no, really, you're not enough. God doesn't build up Moses' self-esteem. He's not his therapist here. God does not tell him, I do not give you more than you can handle, so you must be able to handle this. That makes for really good Instagram religion. It does not make for good theology. God is in the business of giving us more than we can handle. He gives us more than we are sufficient for. God doesn't tell Moses, I know you better than you know yourself. And so if you simply work hard enough and you try hard enough and you'll do enough, then you'll be enough for this task. God's message to Moses is not any of those things. God's message to Moses is, and to you and I, is that you and I, Moses, we are not enough. But he is. Who am I, O God? And the Lord responds with, I'm glad you asked. You're nobody, but I'm coming with you. You're right. You're not enough for this. I'm glad you've recognized it. But you will not be alone. It's like the promise of Jesus when he sends out his disciples. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Moses has promised that God will be with him. And not just, not just an empty promise. God says, I will certainly be with you. Without a doubt, most assuredly be with you. And then we see the rest in verse 12, God's aim for those that he desires to rescue. The Lord tells him, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. There are some signs that are present tense in in, in terms of that they are, they, they happen in the present to encourage someone to live out in the future. Other signs in the scriptures are future oriented. That is, they are to look for, that the people of God are to look forward to them, to hope in them and to trust in God to one day see them. And the sign that God gives to Moses is that he is leading his people, he is going to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, not merely so that they can be free, although that is a good thing, and that is something that they will experience, but so that they will worship the Lord. That is the priority of God in all all of missions, that God himself will be worshipped. That is, missions is not an eternal relocation project where God is merely interested in getting people out of judgment, out from under judgment, out of hell, and into glorious heaven. That's, it's not merely a, a relocation for eternity. It is something far richer, something far better, far greater than those, than those things. Moses, I'm sorry, missions exists for worship. It exists to create worshipers. You shall serve God. You shall worship God on this mountain. The ultimate reason why God has called Moses to rescue, to lead his people out of Israel is so that they may enjoy him, that they may know him, that they may worship him. And this is the reason that God rescues sinners through Jesus Christ. This is the aim of missions. This is our aim in missions. 
this has been God's aim from the very beginning, that all that God does, he does for his glory. Isaiah 48, 11. God explains why he, is going to, why he has rescued his people, Israel, when he's going to rescue his people. He says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned among the nations? I, my glory I will not give to another. We see this in Psalm 106, 7 to 8, when this this episode is rehearsed and explained. We are told why God brings his people out of Egypt. It is because yet the Lord saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Paul explains in Romans nine seventeen why God raised Pharaoh up in the first place. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Reason why God forgives sins. Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. For my own sake, I will remember your sins no more. Even Christ suffers on the cross for the glory of God. Now is my soul troubled, Christ says in John chapter 12. And what shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? For this very purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. As Christ is facing the cross, his prayer is that God's name would be glorified. Jesus helps us to see that his death on the cross is the ultimate display of the glory of God. For it is there on the cross where we see the rich justice of God and the wisdom of God and the righteousness of God and the love of God and His grace and mercy. They explode so that we may glory in God. The aim of God in the gospel, in missions, is to bring sinners into glad enjoyment of His unfathomable glory. So that every people, every tribe, every tongue may know Christ. So that our neighbors and our friends and our family members and our children and grandchildren may know Christ. And if God is rescuing us and he's rescuing sinners for worship to glorify and enjoy him. And part of what that means for you and I is that we must learn to enjoy him. For how can we declare, how can we call others to rejoice in God if we ourselves have such little joy in him? John Piper, in his book, the Let the Nations Be God, put it like this. He says, you cannot commend what you do not cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad, who cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Brothers and sisters, friends, what we need more than anything else is by God's grace to learn to exalt in God so that we may properly exalt Him. But for all this, you and I are not enough. But God is. 
And he sent out Moses and he sends out people today, you and I and, and through this church, missionaries, those who have sacrificed home and contentment here to go where Christ is not named and not known for one ultimate purpose, to see that young men and young women and old men and old women and children come to know and rejoice in God through Christ Jesus. To save, to see that sinners are saved. But all of this assumes one thing. If Moses is sent out so that the people of God may worship him, it assumes that they know him. And so Moses asks a very logical question in verse 13. And Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? You see, part of what Moses, what Moses is not asking is, hey, what do I call you? God has revealed his name prior to this chapter. We find it on the lips of Abraham and of those in the book of Genesis. Here's clearly his name was known. It's not merely a designation like, look, do we call you Mark? Or do we call you Jeff? Or do we call you Cindy? What, what is the, the name, the designation that we call you? It's not merely this designation. What he's looking for is, what are you? What are you like? What is your character? How can we know you? What are, how can we trust you? And God answers. He reveals to him his name. That is, he, he fills up his name with revelation. He explains it. This is who I am. This is my character. This is what I am like. Verse 14, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord, God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial. This is, that is, this is how I am to be known and remembered for all generations. God reveals his name in three different answers, really. He says there at the very beginning of verse 14, I am who I am. And then he follows that up with, I am has sent me to you. Yeah, that's, what he, that's what Moses is to tell the people of Israel. The great I am, the I am who I am. And then in verse 15, he kind of even elaborates on that. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. But you notice how the word Lord there is in all caps. When you see it in low caps, that is another designation for God. Often the word Adonai means master. Here, however, it is, when you see it in all caps, using an English translation, it is the personal name of God. It is sometimes called the, the tetragrammaton. That is, we have four letters. It comes to us in Hebrew through four consonants. Y, H, 
W-H, it's how we might best represent them in English, often pronounced Yahweh or Yehwah. And what's not clear from our English text is that these two ideas, the, the I am who I am, the I am and Yahweh are connected, but they are, in Hebrew, they are connected by the same root word. And it's almost as if I am who I am is how God reveals himself from the first person and Yahweh is how he is communicated. That is his name on the lips of everyone else. This is his personal name. And we see that reflected in our text. Moses is is told, I am has sent me to you. And then in verse 15, it is the Lord, Yahweh, has sent me to you. When Jewish scribes would copy the Old Testament manuscripts, many of them would show various ways, they would all show various ways of extreme reverence for the name of God. Some of them would use special ink, dedicated only for the use of when they would write this name of God, they would only use a certain kind of ink for this particular use. Others would choose not to write the name at all. They would instead simply represent the name as they were writing it out with four dots, four ellipses. Sometimes they would substitute a different name for the name Yahweh. Not wanting at all to take God's name in vain, they would not write it at all. Instead, they would write Elohim or they would write Adonai or some other title for God. But if they did write the name Yahweh, it was clear that as they were writing it out, no matter what was to happen around them, no matter if the king himself was to call on them, they were to not interrupt their their writing of that name until it was completely finished. Extreme reverence. This same kind of reverence is often found amongst Christian scribes as they began to write. We see this in... In English, as, as it comes forward, how we get our, our, our use of Lord with all caps, that comes to us from the 1500s in William Tyndale. He was the first to pioneer that in English. He took that from how Martin Luther used, uh, uh, did this in, in, in Germany. But it's William Tyndale in English who uses the word title, the, the, the title Lord in all caps to indicate the, the name of God. And in nine different places in the Old Testament of Tyndale's Bible, he did translate the name Yahweh into a Latinized version of that, which was Jehovah, which is why is often many, many hymns will use the word Jehovah. What we find is that the I am who I am fills in what it means for God to be Yahweh. It explains it. And so it begs the question, what does it mean for God to be Yahweh, for him to be who he is? Well, the very first implication of this is that God is. I am who I am, therefore God is. He exists. And this is the most obvious and most basic truth, but it, it, it needs to be articulated. It needs to be articulated because there are so many people in our world that do not believe that God exists at all. 
They may believe in many gods. They may believe in one God, like Allah, but they do not believe in this God. They may not believe in any God whatsoever. They may believe that we are our own gods, our own slice of the divine. But against this idea, we find that God is, he exists, he is there, objectively there, outside of us. Whether we like him or not, whatever we define him or not, he is who he is, and he cannot be changed by what we think. That God is, isn't only important, it must not only be stated for those who do not believe that he exists, but it must be stated for you and I. For you and I, so frequently, often we act as if he doesn't exist. It may be that if you and I were to, to ask, do you be, that if I were to ask you, do you believe in God, you would answer, yes, you are here. You are at a church. Perhaps you might even say that you have always believed. And that is good. But it is woefully insufficient if believing in God does not exist, does does not change us. So many people, perhaps some of us here this morning, believe that God exists. We have some very good ideas of what and who this God is, and yet we live as if he doesn't. One writer long ago, years ago, described this as... He compared this to the way you and I have learned about uh, various things in school. Particularly, he used the illustration of, of water. Many of you, we were in school, and at one point, while in a class, you learned that water was made up of both hydrogen and oxygen. That there's two parts hydrogen to one part oxygen, and these had bonded together in a special and particular way. And now, and through that bond, we have By them, water, H2O. And you learned that in class, and it made no difference to your life. You don't go out and drink, I'm going to drink more water, because now I know it's got hydrogen in it. That's important to me. I want that. Interesting. Now we move on. And often that is how you and I have treated the existence of God. Interesting, I know it, it's there. He's there, but he makes no difference to my life whatsoever. It would be like us getting married. And then not looking at our spouse, not talking to them, not not engaging with them at all, but merely acknowledging them on special dates and anniversaries. We may know who that person is. We may know our wife or our husband. We may know about them. I know what their food is. I know all sorts of things about them. But we live our lives as if they make no difference whatsoever. This is what sin is, isn't it? We understand that in our world, the greater the personage, the greater the, the, the dignity, the greater the glory, the greater someone is, the more respect and honor they deserve from us. And yet, we who acknowledge, we who know that God is, we often give him such little honor. One day we will answer to him. 
and we will stand before him. The fact that God is and that yet so many who claim to believe in him regard him so lightly, hold him so cheaply is itself the grounds for ultimate condemnation. Friend, it will not be hard for God to condemn us. It will be easy. We say with our lips that God is, but our lives declare something else entirely. I am who I am, God is. But more than this, God is, He is Yahweh, the I am who I am. He is an all-sufficient being. He is all-sufficient, all-sufficient in His being, all-sufficient in His character, all-sufficient in His purposes, in His plans, in His power. He is all-sufficient in Himself. And, and, and what that means is that he owes nothing to anyone or anything else. He is self-sufficient in his being. That there is never a time that there was no beginning to God. He had no birthday, no time in which he did not exist, but then became into existence. There was no time when God was young. And so because we cannot speak of a time when God was young, we cannot speak of him as being old. He is outside of time. We, we come from parents. And our being, all of that is given shape to us from our parents. But God has no beginning to his being. His being owes itself only to himself. More than this, not only is self-sufficient in his being, he is self-sufficient and self-existent in his character. That is, all that is God is God. How did you get to be the way that you are? Think of all of the influences that have have shaped you, have molded you. Certainly, your ears, your nose, you might say, all right, I look like my parents, for better, for worse. But it's not just the way we look. Think about your personality. Think about the the influences there. Oh, I can see myself in in, in how I reflect my parents. I don't want to become like my mom. I don't want to become like my dad. But for better or worse, we we become like our parents in some of the ways that we don't want to. And yet, blessed to be become like them in other ways. But it is not just through genetics or through our parentage. It's through a, a host of unfathomable influences that shape you and I. Decades of choices, decades of patterns. God has no outside influence in his character or being. Nothing has shaped him. He is the I am. That is, all that he is, is him. And it is not the result of countless thousands of ages in which he has borne up with people. You and I are shaped by our surroundings. We are shaped by our circumstances. People who have undergone great trauma over long periods of time, it shapes them, does it not? It changes them. It alters them. It, it, it works itself upon them. It burdens them. God is not like that. 
He is who He is. He does not change over time. He does not mature and grow. Nothing contributes to Him. He is the I am. More than this, He is self-sufficient in His power. This is, this is seen in the, the picture of the burning bush. We saw last week how the burning bush is itself a picture of God's holiness as it burns pure fire, but it is also a picture of His self-sufficiency. He is the great I am. The bush burns, but it doesn't burn. It is pure fire. It is a self-sufficient fire, self-sufficient energy. It needs no source. It simply is. God does not run out. He does not run short on power. He does not grow weary at the end of a long day. He is the I am. Nor does he derive his power or strength from anyone or anything. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. He doesn't rest. He doesn't take a day off to recover. Nor does he receive help and assistance from you and I. He is inexhaustible in his power. And he is self-sufficient. And because God is self-sufficient, he is unchangeable. The I am who I am, the God who always was, is, and always will be. He is unchangeable in his being. Unchangeable in his purposes and plans. Unchangeable in his character. Unchangeable in his power. And therefore, he is faithful in all of his promises. Unfailing toward all of his people. More than this, because God is self-sufficient, he is also independent. That is, he does not need you. He does not need us. Acts 17, 24 and 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, Paul is preaching, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is the old doctrine of God's aseity. God is, and he is independent, and he is free. He doesn't create because he needed to create. He creates because he is a creator. He is the creator. And he saves because he is a savior. And if God does not need us, this makes his mercy towards us all the more astounding because God isn't trying to get anything from us. God does not save you because he wants something from you. Everything else in this world wants something from you. You are given a coupon in the mail, or really books of coupons, right? And the goal, the hope is we are going to give you these coupons. We want you to redeem them because we want you to shop here. Everything else wants something from you. Everything else needs something from you. God needs nothing from you. And he doesn't even need you to be happy, to be himself. He is self-sufficient. 
And this shows us how rich His mercy is. Because the God who doesn't need us doesn't need to show mercy at all. And yet He shows mercy in such glorious ways, doesn't He? He who doesn't need you has sent His Son into the world to rescue you. Why? Is it because we have something to offer? Something to give? Is it because he and his heart was really waiting for you and I to come along? Oh, friend, do not be, do not be deceived by such low and cheap views of God. His mercy is not, he is not merciful because he needs something. And so he is free in mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. And if you have trusted in Christ Jesus, that grace, that mercy, that love, that was freely given, gladly given, joyfully given with all of God's own heart. And friend, it it urges you to come forward to taste of this mercy, this freedom, this joy in the God who can't be bought by our good effort. The God whose mercy isn't cheapened by being earned, by being worked for. Every other religion in the world declares that if we will work, if we will do, then God will respond with mercy. But God's mercy can't be purchased that way. It isn't purchased with our doing. It was purchased by his own doing. It was purchased with the done of Christ Jesus, what he did at the cross. Yahweh is the I am who I am. He is the self-sufficient one. And what we find throughout Scripture is that Christ is this I am who I am. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord. John 1, 1, beautiful text, gives us this mystery. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, the same beginning that we read about in Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God. Here, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. All right, so here is this Word. Here is Christ, the revelation of God. And He is distinct from God. He is with God. But then we find the very next phrase, this Word, which was in the beginning, with God, was God, is God. Moreover, John will make this clear throughout his gospel and throughout his letters that Jesus is not to be mistaken for anything else short of fully God. In Isaiah chapter 6, we have this record of Isaiah, the prophet, who was given a fantastic and incredible vision of Yahweh. We read about it there in Isaiah chapter 6 where he says, I saw the Lord, I saw Yahweh, high and lifted up. The angels are praising the Lord, praising God. And John writes in John chapter 12, verse 38 to 41, John tells us that the one who Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6 was none other than Jesus Christ. He wrote that, John says, because he saw him. He saw Christ. And that truth can be found all throughout the New Testament. 
the one who is self-sufficient, the one who is fully God, the one who is who He is, is nothing less than Jesus. Contrary to what you will find in Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and Islam, Jesus is not merely a prophet. He is not a lesser being. He is not even, as Jehovah's Witnesses teach, the great first being, the great first created being. No, Christ is fully and truly, completely God. And that is the mystery of Christ. That is the mystery of the Incarnation. That the self-sufficient, eternal God took on our insufficiency. Strength, infinite strength, took on weakness. Timelessness took on the ravages of time. The Eternal One took on mortality. The Living One took on death, our death. The One who had never before had to breathe, deliberately breathed His last in a sacrifice for sin. The One in the burning bush who sends Moses, who rescues sinners, who saves the One This one we are to trust. This one is Jesus. Jesus, none other than Jesus. Moses did what God called him to do. Next week we are going to see and unpack a few of Moses' reasons, poor reasons why he doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. What Moses does, he is sent, even though he doesn't feel sufficient for it, and he finds that in his insufficiency, God is more than sufficient. Men and women, God is still sufficient for you and I today. He is sufficient for you who are staring down retirement and you're not sure if you have enough. God is. He is enough. His presence is enough. Whether it is a health crisis, whether it is a crisis within your family, whether it is a dark and trying time, God is enough. More than this, whether you are facing the best days of your life or the most difficult, we must learn that God alone is enough and always enough. He alone is sufficient. Not only for us, but for our children, our grandchildren. Christ gives us the call that we are to, if we have trusted in him, we are to be his witnesses to the end of the earth. Whether that means we send and support or whether we go ourselves, we are his witnesses and we are all to be going, whether that means in our own neighborhood or that means to the next county or to another country. And some of us here need to consider the call of foreign missions. And if you go, whether it be foreign missions or local, you will find God is enough. In the moment when you are terrified to speak of Him, you will find that God is enough. His mercy is more than sufficient to stain you on the mission that He has given us. There is none like him, none glorious like him. And so he calls us to see him, to savor him, to worship him, to enjoy him. To be satisfied in him who is all-sufficient. This year is the 162nd anniversary 
of the deaths of a Canadian couple that you have probably never heard of. On May 20th, 1861, Mr. and Mrs. George Gordon went to live as missionaries. They had gone to live as missionaries on the Aramango Islands, and they were killed on May 20th, 1861. They were killed by the very ones that they were trying to reach. When the news of their martyrdom reached the aged and sightless mother of George, she cried out, My son, my son. And she wept. George's brother James was a student at that time aiming to go into the ministry. And he wrote to the mission board of his brother and he asked that he be allowed to go to the Aramango Islands to serve in his brother's place. So he too went, served in that very island, and he, by God's grace, saw fruit there, but he himself lost his life giving, to the, giving the gospel to the very ones that had killed his brother. And when news reached his mother that he too had died, She responded quietly, I wish I had another boy that the heathen may receive salvation. Friends, that is a response of a woman who had found that God is self-sufficient and sufficient for her. May you and I find our Savior to be so sufficient for us. Let's pray. Our God, you are the I am who I am. You not only are, you were and will be, you are, oh God, sufficient in all things. Oh God, would you teach us that in our insufficiency we may find in you all that we need. That in your name, the name of the Lord, the name that you have revealed yourself, that there we will find hope. That we may carry that hope to others, that we ourselves may enjoy you and rejoice in you. Oh God, have mercy. That we may rejoice in, in knowing your name our great sufficient God. It is in the name of Christ, your Son, our Savior, we pray. Amen.